Thank you, Paula and Carlos and Randy and Charlesy and Barbara, musicians, singers. I'm grateful uh, for the uh, music tonight. And uh, I'm glad that you all are here tonight as well. I had no idea who would show up. And um, for the much-anticipated, long-awaited Song of Solomon, we've been thinking together for some weeks about cultural competitors for Christianity. We looked at false wisdom uh, in Proverbs. We looked at materialism in Ecclesiastes. But in my mind, without question, the greatest competitor for Christianity in our culture is the worship of sensuality. Mark Dever writes about the sexual revolution in which simple changes instigated profound effects. These are his words, contraception replaced conception and the price of sexual activity seemingly dropped dramatically. Pleasure was separated from responsibility. Contraceptive devices and abortion clinics replaced schools and orphanages. It was as if a license was given out legitimizing the bending of every part of our lives around serving ourselves. Since that time, divorce and remarriage, abortion, pre- and extramarital sex, and even homosexuality have been accepted by increasing percentages of the public. Pornography has become big business Some estimate it to be a $10 billion a year business. And somehow, the church has not responded biblically to this change. On the one hand, there are some in the church who have simply gone along with the cultural shift and said, we might as well join the crowd and surrender to our desires. There are literally denominations that are battling over whether or not homosexuals can be ministers in their denominations. And on the other hand, there are those Christians who suggest that we should deny our physical desires altogether. Just pretend they're not there and perhaps they'll go away. David Platt uh, talks about reading this book with his wife. He says that God wants husbands and wives to follow the admonition of James to be not just hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. So like him, I've read this book, and I want tonight to share with you just parts of it, if I may. And and it may seem a bit uncomfortable, a bit awkward, but I think the church has too long been silent about intimacy, and I want us to hear a word from God, a word from God's word about a very, very important issue in our lives. So if you have your Bibles with you tonight, and I hope you do, would you open to Song of Songs, chapter 1, and I'm going to share with you from God's Word tonight, Song of Songs, chapter 1. We need news from another network. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word? I don't ever remember preaching from Song of Songs before, so this is a bit of a first for me as well, though I'm sure I've used it as an example. Verse 1, Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like 
perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And then I pick up with verse 9 where the lover responds, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand your word and apply it to our lives in ways that will help us to be obedient to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So I didn't have to read very far about kisses and uh, sachets of fragrance to know this is not just, um, for instance, the book of Leviticus. I mean, you read it and you say, now that, that's a bit different. And um, I think it, it could be a bit unnerving for us, um, you know, bellies and navels and breasts, oh my. What, what is the what is the, the best love song of all time? We might debate that subject tonight. You have your favorite love songs. I have mine. I came from a sort of Motown background, to tell you the truth. And uh, I liked the Commodores and uh, Lionel Richie when I was growing up. And, uh, and then James Taylor and uh, a number of different singers. And, and what's interesting is this book starts out with the simple title, Solomon's Song of songs. And when the Hebrew says song of songs, what it means is this is the song of all the songs. This is the best love song of all. If we think of it in terms of inspiration, imagine God inspiring a love song and Solomon writing down the words. Now we don't really know from the the Solomon song of songs whether this was written by Solomon or for Solomon or about Solomon. The grammar of verse 1 would allow any of the three, and so um, we're not exactly sure. The question is, how shall we interpret it? And it's interesting that through the years, there have been many different interpretations. In fact, up until about the 1970s, there were very few commentaries that looked at these words as literal. Throughout the ages, the church has sort of seen this as an allegory and said, this is really not about a man and his wife. This song of songs is is really an allegory, and the different items within it suggest different things. So one, I'm not making this up, one says, the kisses in verse 2 refer to the Word of God. Now, I'm not sure how they get that, but that's the sort of... uh, allegory that I mean. And instead of seeing this as real people, there's some really creative interpretations. The lips of the woman refer to the law and the prophets, some have said. Her breasts have been compared to any number of things, Moses and Aaron, for example. I'm not making this up. But usually, the book of Song of Songs has been seen as an allegory of God's love for his people. This is God, the lover, The church is the beloved. That's the sort of allegory that's been drawn up through the years. 
Others have used a typological approach and say, really, it was about a man and his wife, but, but they signify more than just a man and his wife. They stand for other things. Still others see this as a drama between King Solomon and a beautiful young woman. And we may ask, how does Solomon become an authority on marriage for us, having been married some 1,000 times? We may look at this, as it literally says, as a song, maybe a collection of of love songs. They are human love poems in which lovers actually are lovers, and desire is actually desire. And in context, the song describes physical intimacy between husband and wife as God intended it to be. It really starts out with attraction and courtship and then a wedding and then the wedding night. Two different times there are descriptions of physical intimacy. They are, by uh, our, our mindset, I think, relatively graphic descriptions of physical intimacy. There's conflict between husband and wife, as there often is in marriage. And then there is resolution of that conflict and ultimately there is perseverance in the relationship, husband and wife staying together all the way through the finish line. And so, for, a, for so long, the message of the church about sexual intimacy has sounded something like this as we spoke to our young people and to our single adults. Sex is bad. Sex is wrong. Stay away from it. There. Now go out and have a good life. But I want to give you a different message tonight, and I want you to hear me clearly from God's Word. From this beautiful portrait, I want to say to you that sex is good. Now, I can just imagine one of our students putting that on Facebook tonight, sex is good, says Dr. Brooks, or Twittering that somewhere. But I want you to hear me. Our good God made intimacy as good for our good and for His glory. And all of the Bible teaches that God intended it to be good. He declared from the beginning that male and female should become one flesh. And remember, before sin, they were unashamed of their nakedness. So watch this. What we see in the Scriptures is what I would call a three-tiered intimacy. It begins with what I would call spiritual intimacy. A man and a woman who are, who are mutually committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and beyond that, are committed to the Great Commission, to to making disciples in their homes and of their friends and in their community and in their nation to the ends of the earth, fulfilling the kingdom of God by bringing other people into relationship with God. And if you have that in common with somebody, you have the beginnings of a great foundation for a marriage. If you share common commitment to Christ, don't hear me saying... Um, If you meet somebody and they've ever been to church, that's a good thing, and you can marry that person. Don't hear me saying, um, that person's uncle is a Baptist preacher, so obviously they're a very spiritual person. I mean, we need to discern at the very beginning a common commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, anybody that applies for the job of marrying you ought to be wholly committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ and live under his lordship every day. So that, so that if someday, for instance, somebody comes to me and, and, uh, and Casey brings a young man home and there's the idea that he's going to invite, um, is going to ask me for her hand in marriage, I think the conversation might go something like this um, to sort of paraphrase Tommy Nelson at this point. So my daughter sees something in you that she likes. 
might start there. And then I might say to him, um, tell me about your faith commitment to Jesus Christ. And if he passes that test, then I'll say, explain to me the book of Habakkuk. And just sort of, you know, I, I think we'll be able to sort of separate it out right there and just see whether or not he's committed to Christ. And my challenge to you is to have that common spiritual commitment to Christ. And then the next tier, I think, is what I would call soulish intimacy, where you become best friends with that person, where you share your hearts and your life together. And when those two things are right, and there has been a period of communication uninterrupted and unhindered by a sort of... um, um, total involvement in physical commitment, but first spiritual and then soulish. Then out of that, after marriage comes this beautiful sexual intimacy that God created for husband and wife. But we live in a culture that has flipped those upside down and said, if I can find somebody that I'm physically attracted to, and if we're physically and sexually compatible, well, then maybe we can sort of think about becoming friends at some point after that. And, and maybe someday we'll go to church together. After we have our first kids, we, we sure ought to take them to church because my parents took me to church. And I'm just telling you, that's a really backwards way of doing things. That it ought to start with commitment to Christ and then commitment to each other. And then, and then in a marital relationship, there is this wonderful, beautiful picture of sexual intimacy as God designed it to be. So I say to you again, sex is good. In fact, it is so good that it should not be devalued or trivialized or treated as less important than it is. And when it is misused outside the context that God created it for, it it creates huge problems. It becomes a form of idolatry where we love the creation more than the very creator who gave it to us. And believe me when I say tonight, as good as intimacy in a marriage is, it is no substitute for relationship with God. That God is better than any gift he ever created and that knowing him and loving him is more important than the things that he has given to us. So I begin tonight with a caution and just say to you, intimacy outside of marriage is dangerous and leads to pain. Let me just show you three verses. It's just a repetition of the same thought. In chapter two, verse seven, if you have your Bibles with you, listen closely. Listen to what this woman says. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. In chapter 3, verse 5, the same thought. In chapter 8, verse 4, the exact same words. In other words, be careful not to awaken intimacy and sexual relationships before it is time, because sex outside of marriage is sin. Whether it's premarital or extramarital, it's sin. It also cheapens what God intended to be beautiful The Bible doesn't teach a sort of serial monogamy, be committed to the person you're with right now. You know, sort of the old 60s song, love the one you're with. If you can't be with the one you love, then love the one you're with. No, no, in fact, the Bible doesn't teach serial monogamy. It just teaches monogamy. One man, one woman for a lifetime. And by the way, monogamy doesn't have to be monotony. It can be very beautiful and wonderful and grow through a lifetime. In some ways, in some ways, I think, dating multiple people, just sort of dating as many people as you can, sort of playing the field as we used to call it, in some ways is practicing for divorce. It means you sort of um, date as many as you can and when the physical relationship takes over, have you noticed 
the way that communication stops. You're talking, everything's going well, the physical relationship begins, and then there's no room for talking anymore. Instead of growing closer and learning to share life together and joining each other in a common mission for Christ, the physical has a way of dominating the relationship. And you say, but what about if we're engaged? And my word to you about that would be, can I just introduce you to a lot of people I know who were once engaged who never married that person and say to you that, that, that intimacy is for marriage alone, that it, 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 it should be reserved for the wedding itself. And I say that because, um, because when we live in the way that God intends for marriage to be, then Marriage can be as beautiful as God intended, where we give ourselves freely to our spouses. But to, to have sex without being married is like moving into a house that you've not purchased. It would be hard to unpack. It would be hard to ever feel comfortable. And without that sense of safety and security, intimacy can never be what God intended for it to be. In fact, we have a picture here in chapter 8 where uh, these brothers of this young woman who marries... Um, want to protect their sister. And in verses 8 and 9, they say, We have a young sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister for the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. Here are brothers saying, We will protect and guard our sister. We will protect and guard her purity. And I read that this week and thought, we ought to make Tallawood a place where we guard the purity of the single adults, for our single friends, for our young people especially. I would urge you, make sure that you protect each other. If you're dating, you have a responsibility to help each other by not awakening that physical relationship before marriage. You have a, a responsibility to hold each other accountable and care about each other and not just sort of say, well, whatever works for you is fine or that might be right for you, but it's wrong for me in a sort of Oprah kind of sense. And I guess if I'll bag on Oprah, I'll bag on anybody. But I want you to know um, that God intends for us to protect each other. Remember that movie, The Big Fat Greek Wedding, where um, the cousin Nick uh, meets the groom-to-be for the first time and he sort of takes him aside and says, if you ever hurt my cousin... We'll kill you. I'm just kidding, but really, <laughs> but really. And uh, I've said that to some of the young men who've dated my, my eldest niece uh, occasionally. We sort of, my brothers and I sort of uh, gang up on these young guys. And she's not married yet, but so far it's worked in a way. We've guarded her very well. I challenge you to guard each other's purity. Young men, guard your, guard your sister's purity. These young women are your sisters in Christ. Young women, help the young men by by guarding their purity. Be gardens locked up for God, as the Scriptures describe it here. So in that sense, I think we should be careful what we say to each other and the way we dress around each other. We dress conservatively in the Christian community, not because we're legalistic, but because we love each other and we don't want to create problems for each other. My message is not that sex is so bad you must avoid it. My message is it is so incredibly precious that we should value it and save it and cherish it for the moment that God intended in marriage on the wedding night. So first, a caution. Then second, a celebration. Intimacy is a gift from God for husbands and wives. And I want to say our culture still implies that, that there's something unclean or unhealthy about intimacy. Married couples know better than that. Intimacy is, is made for pleasure, not just for procreation. How do I know that? There is not a kid anywhere in the whole book of Song of Songs 
Not one child. There's a lot of sex, but there are no kids, which tells me that this is not primarily about procreation, but it's about pleasure. Intimacy in this story begins with exclusive devotion to spouses. You hear it. I'll just give you some references. In chapter 2, verse 16, we read these words, um, my lover is mine and I am his. That's a familiar refrain in this book. In 4.12, in 4.12, the, the husband says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. In chapter 6, verse 3, I am my lover's and my lover is mine. In 7, verse 10, it says, I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. In chapter 7, verse 13, she says, I've stored up every delicacy for my lover. That is to say, there is at the, at the outset this exclusive relationship of devotion to each other. And I think this exclusive devotion is still very important. If we ask, well, who will know? The answer is God will know. I think we hear it in that, in that moment when when Potiphar's wife tempts Joseph and Joseph says, how can I do this thing against God? How could I, how could I sin in this way against God? So my word to you not about exclusive devotion goes beyond the idea, husbands and wives, that you should only ever have intimacy with each other. You're not surprised that I would take that stance or that the Bible speaks about that. But if I could be practical, I would say to the men in this room tonight, to the young men in this room tonight, do not ever let two-dimensional pictures on a screen replace the wife that God has given you. I would caution you to be careful in your relationships with others. Uh, I have a friend who's a counselor who says very often the, the quietest and shyest and most passive among us are those upon whom adultery sneaks up. Somebody who's outgoing and dynamic comes along and a shy and quiet person sort of falls for that. And so my word to you is what my, my brother, my minister, friend, and Pastor Larry Bertrand says, never give a compliment to another woman that you could have given to your wife. Citing the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, a study shows that 57% of divorce cases in the United States involve one party having, having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 68% of divorce cases involve one spouse conducting an affair with someone they met over the internet. I would encourage uh, women not to entice or or flirt with other men, and men not to entice or flirt uh, with other women, not to share emotional needs with a person who is not your spouse. It's so easy to sort of say, well, my wife or my husband's not meeting my emotional needs, so this coworker or this friend or this neighbor, I'll just tell them what I'm feeling, and then that results in a relationship that is unhealthy and unwholesome. Whether or not it ends up in physical consummation, it becomes tantamount to adultery because that person replaces our husband or our wife in a way that God did not intend so I, I, I commit to you tonight, and I invite you to commit with me that we will have eyes only for our spouses, hearts only for our spouses, exclusive in our thoughts, exclusive in our looks, only for our spouses, exclusive with our hearts to love them alone. And how are we to do that in an immoral world where adultery is prominent in culture and even in church? What did Joseph do when Potiphar's wife propositioned him? He ran from her. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, when he teaches about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, says the same word, flee from immorality. The word in Greek is fugo. It gives us our word fugitive. Flee from sinful sexual immorality. You're either a fugitive from immorality or you're a fugitive from God. You're running from somebody. Don't run from God. Run to God in that time of temptation. Run to him. 
I had a friend once who sold part of his business so that he would be removed from a relationship which brought him temptation. Jesus says, pluck out your eye, cut off a hand, not meaning literally, but spiritually, whatever it costs you to avoid adultery, that cost is worth the expense you will have to pay to separate yourself from that temptation which wars against your soul. And I I challenge you, I I remember I've shared examples in the past from, um, from my life where God enabled me to escape from a moment of temptation without rehearsing those tonight, I would just say to you that it is possible to overcome temptation. It is possible to to run away from temptation. The second thing I would say to you is that intimacy, which begins with exclusive devotion, continues with words of affirmation for each other. Listen to the way that they speak to each other. And again, I would just say to you, this gets a bit uh, graphic, but I just want you to see the words that he says in verse 9. I read to you, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I'm thinking that if I were to compare my spouse to a horse, that wouldn't work well for me. So it may be that something is lost in translation. In chapter 7, he says, your waist is like, a, is like a bushel of wheat. It doesn't sound attractive. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. I don't recommend that you try that. But when he says in verse 15 of chapter 1, how beautiful you are, oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves, we can relate to that. We can understand. And when she says, how handsome you are, my lover, oh, how charming. And then in in chapter 4, when we see this moment that they are coming together on their wedding day, and he says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful your eyes behind your veil are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats coming down the mountain. Again, I think we've probably lost something in translation. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each of your teeth has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Now, there are some states in our union where this Bible verse actually does not apply. But he goes on to talk about her lips and her temples and her neck and her breasts and He says to her, all beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Chapter 4, verse 7. In his eyes, she is perfect. In chapter 5, verses 10 to 16, she describes him. My lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is pure as gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are, listen to this description of his guns. They're like rods of gold set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. What man would not appreciate it if his wife thought of him that way? So intimacy involves kind communication to each other. And then it involves beautiful consummation in, in chapter 5, uh, end of chapter 4 and chapter 5. Um, she describes herself as a garden. He describes her as a garden fountain. She says, I am a garden. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, I have come into my garden. In chapter 7, again, he wants to experience intimacy with his wife. These are These are beautiful kinds of expressions within marriage where he wants to be with his wife. And God intends for husbands and wives to share beautiful intimacy together. And I know in many marriages this is difficult. Sometimes it relates to to painful experiences in the past. Sometimes to abuse, sometimes to guilt, sometimes just to this idea that intimacy is bad. I remember my first pastor at one Sunday morning, I taught Sunday school and I preached at that church. And 
one of the young couples who had just gotten married. I had done, I, they probably were the very first wedding I ever did, or one of the very first weddings I ever did. And, and they, were, they were surprised to hear that the apple that Adam and Eve ate in the garden was not sex. That in their minds, that the eating of that apple was a metaphor for them having sex for the first time. And that was the first sin. And so, so even though they desired each other, they felt like every time they were together, that they were sinning against God. And that may sound absurd to us, but when people have these kinds of ideas ingrained into their minds, it's very hard sometimes to break free from them. In some cases, um, impatience and courtship and engagement may create anger and frustration and problems in marriage later. All kinds of misinformation must be forgotten in the early years of marriage. All the things that we heard in the locker rooms, uh, men, sometimes need to be forgotten. Some of the idealized, romanticized ideas, those things somehow must be laid aside where honest communication can take place and we can share with each other our concerns and our needs And Mark Dever is right when he says we may be modest. In fact, we probably should be modest in our conversations about these things with others. But we have no reason to be ashamed of intimacy between husband and wife. And I love the way this intimacy goes on and on and lasts for a lifetime. So in chapter 8, verse 14, the last word of the book is her saying to him, hurry back, (laughs) come again to me, my lover, And let's share intimacy again. Imagine that we have loved each other and we will love each other again. And we will love each other for a lifetime. And I remember after we heard of Melanie's mom's death on the bus uh, some years ago. That we went to be with her dad. And he showed us a Valentine's Day. It was Valentine's Day 2003 when um, she passed away. And he had given her a Valentine's Day card that morning on the way to the church when they were going to get on the bus. And um, I love about Jim that he was always complimenting Joe. And when he couldn't find her outside the bus after the crash, he went back into that bus again and again, trying to find her in that bus that had turned over that day. And for me, from a family that resulted in divorce, ultimately my parents, when I was in my 30s, divorced I've always looked at Jim and Joe and seen in them this beautiful relationship that lasted all the way through the finish line as a reminder to me of the way God intends for our marriage to be. There's a song I loved years ago that said, there's a love that lasts a lifetime. The love between a man and wife. A love so strong, it goes beyond all reason. It flows from God above. A perfect union formed within his hand. The the hand that formed the earth, the sky and sea still brings hearts and lives together, joining them in three-part harmony, husband and wife and God, three-part harmony, a, a, a bond made of three strands is not easily broken, we read in Ecclesiastes. This earthly marriage is just a foretaste of the joy we will have in heaven with God. And so the great consummation of the ages, if we could look at sex and salvation history as David Platt describes it, I would just say this to you, as good as the marriage relationship is, it is not better. It is no substitute for relationship with God. We compliment our spouses. I love the way Melanie compliments me and I compliment. I don't mean that we speak words of compliment. I mean that we sort of compliment each other because we're so different and she's strong where I'm weak and I hope to be strong where she is weak, though I'm pretty sure she does a better job of that than I. But I would just say this to you. We may compliment each other, 
But no human being on this earth can complete you. It would be unfair for you to say to a husband or wife, you're just not giving me what I need because I thought you would make me happy. That's a burden too heavy for any relationship to bear. Only God can complete us. Only God can make us happy. So where we're in a struggle with a spouse and we feel like, you know, you're just not doing what I thought you ought to do. This is not what I thought marriage would be. I would just say to you in that regard that, that in some ways some things can become too important to us. And most of all, we need relationship with God. And when we're right with God, then we are better at loving each other. When we learn to submit to His Lordship, then we can submit to each other in that mutuality of submission that Paul describes in Ephesians 5. And what he says to us is that this beauty of marriage that we see in Adam and Eve before the fall, this beauty of love that we see described in the Song of Solomon, that the real love of a husband and wife is a beautiful comparison of the relationship of God to his people, of Christ, to the church. And God's creation in the beginning of husband and wife points to God's salvation in his creation of the church and his redemption of us. And so we read in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he says the real beauty of marriage is that it is a portrait at its best of the relationship of God loving us. And it may be that your wife doesn't love you perfectly. And it may be that your husband doesn't love you perfectly. But believe me when I say your God loves you perfectly. That there's nothing missing in his love for you and his compassion for you. When Christ laid down his life on the cross, he was literally giving himself up for the church. And if Christ does not give up on the church. And believe me when I say he doesn't. I I read a lot of parachurch uh, literature these days where they've just given up on the church. And it gives me great comfort to know when I read the scripture that God has not given up on his church. But if God doesn't give up on his church, then you and I must not give up on marriage. We must not give up on our spouses. We're in process. We're all learning and growing, being sanctified in that process of becoming more and more like Christ. And the promise is Revelation chapter 19, where we read about the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 21, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride for her husband. And it may sound funny tonight when I say to those who are thinking about marriage that No husband is ready to be a husband until he has learned what it means to be part of the bride of Christ. Until he knows what it's like to be loved by God unconditionally and completely and sacrificially. And no wife is ready, no young woman is ready for marriage until she understands what it means to be loved by Christ and to be fulfilled in him. Now, it could be that something I've said tonight has stirred in you some sort of pain. So let me be a pastor here for a moment and not just a preacher and say to you, if your marriage is not what you hope it would be and it seems like it never will be, that there is grace in Christ. If your desire for marriage is unfulfilled, I want to leave you with grace to know, as David Platt says, if you never have a husband or a wife in this life, there is a husband in heaven who will heal your heart. There is a Savior what joys express, his, his eyes are mercy, his word is rest for each tomorrow, for yesterday there is a Savior.
who lights your way. And what about those tonight after we paint this idyllic and beautiful picture of intimacy who say, but that is not the way I have lived my life. I have made mistakes along the way. I am still battling. I am still struggling with temptation. And I don't feel worthy to be loved. I don't feel worthy to enter into relationship, maybe in my own marriage or maybe in some future marriage. I just don't feel worthy. And I would just say to you that God's forgiveness is complete. And we can be clothed in his righteousness that you and I can be forgiven. Uh, In recent days... uh, one of our sons and I have taken to, to watching sermons online. It's kind of fun to listen and hear what God is saying. There's a great number of great young preachers out there that God is using powerfully. And we heard Matt Chandler speak the other night. Chandler's kind of a wild card if you ever tune into him. He's the pastor of the Village Church up in Dallas. But I conclude with a story that he tells about, about how he was ministering to a friend of his who was a single woman. And she had been through a lot of things in her life. Her life, even at that moment, was still filled with temptation and challenges. Um, She was um, ashamed and felt guilty of the mistakes that she had made. And after great pleading with her, one night she decided to come to church with him. And wouldn't you know it, that night, the preacher that night was, was laying a heavy, heavy guilt trip. He didn't preach the gospel that night. He preached guilt that night. And he absolutely lambasted anybody who'd ever made a mistake in a relationship. Anybody who'd ever succumbed to temptation, everybody, everybody who'd ever lusted or, or ever made a mistake or looked at somebody the wrong way or entered into a wrong relationship, he spent the night absolutely killing people like that. It wasn't the gospel, Chandler says. And to illustrate his point, he started the sermon by taking a beautiful red rose and handing it to somebody in the crowd and saying, just pass this around tonight, just pass this rose around Smell it, feel it, hold it, touch it. Just pass it around. And as he concluded his sermon, he said, where's my rose? Somebody at the back of the crowd lifted up this dilapidated, broken-stemmed, petals falling off of it, broken, formerly beautiful rose. And he said, who would ever want to have a rose like that? If you've made these kinds of mistakes... If you choose to live a life of immorality, nobody would ever want a person like you. And Matt Chandler said that night he decided that when he became a preacher, he would never preach a sermon like that. And he said for all that was in him, he wanted to stand up that night when that preacher said, who would ever want a rose like that? He wanted to stand up and shout at the top of his lungs, God does. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to redeem a broken and fallen humanity so that for that person who has spent a life that is not something that you're proud of and you've made mistakes along the way and you think that nobody, and maybe you've heard this message in a church somewhere or from a pulpit somewhere, nobody could ever love you, nobody would ever want you. My word to you tonight is a word of grace. I want to preach not guilt, but the gospel. I want you to hear the good news tonight that God wants you. And he sent his only son to die for you so that you could be forgiven and redeemed and made new. And we have a Savior who makes all things new, including me, including you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that we can be loved. That even though we've made mistakes, God, you forgive. 
and you give us a new beginning. And Lord, tonight we don't want to preach moralism. We don't want to heap guilt on people. Lord, we'd like to heap grace on people. We'd like to tell people what you've done for us. And we want to believe you, God, when you say to us that we are forgiven and we are brand new and we can be restored completely. Father, we hear you say that and we receive that from your heart. And tonight, Lord, we want to come to your cross and find your grace and become your people. Lord, I pray that you will teach us the truth we've heard tonight, that you would plant it deeply in our hearts. And you would help us to love you who have loved us so much. We are our beloved's and he is ours. Your banner over us is love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.